Welcome to The Twelfth Story, a book discussion podcast produced by the Mercantile Library in Cincinnati, Ohio. The Mercantile is the literary center of Cincinnati. We hold literary events, book discussions, concerts, film screenings, and much more throughout the year. You can find more information about The Mercantile, including a calendar of our upcoming events, on our website, mercantilelibrary.com. I'm Ben Greenberg. I'm a writer, and I do other things, too. I'm here with Jennifer Glazer, assistant professor at, at the University of Cincinnati. Hi, Ben. Grace Dobush, freelance journalist. Hello. And Luke Blocher. He is the assistant city solicitor of the city of Cincinnati, and he is a bon vivant. <laughs> Thank you. Hi. But he's also married with children, so he's not really a bon vivant. Uh, <laughs> there are many types of bon vivants. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that is accurate. Um, we are here today to discuss Miranda July's uh, first novel, uh, The First Bad Man. Um, Miranda July is a filmmaker, she is a musician, she's a performance artist, uh, she published a book of short stories, and um, she has a very peculiar and particular aesthetic, uh, which I find really interesting and compelling. Um, and uh, I'm really excited to talk about this book. Uh, so I'm just gonna kick it off uh, and throw out this question, um, who is Kubelko Bondi? <laughs> who isn't Kubelko Bondi? That's a really good question. Very uh, good response. I I'm now calling everybody I encounter Kubelko Bondi in my head, and I've actually said it aloud in certain moments when I'm home because it, the name goes through my head so often. Um. It's a really well. It's just, I mean, it's just a. I don't know if "beautiful" is the right word, but it just, it's such a unique, wonderful name, and it and it and for this sort of uh, magical thing that's a fixed thing in this woman's head, like it just was the. It was a wonderful. It was a wonderful name to create for that that thing that was sort of in Cheryl Glickman's life. And in some ways, like, the thing that she had this rigorous life built around uh, order and her own control over everything. And this was the one, like, until it became real, like, the one human connection she had or allowed herself, which, which was, like, it was almost like this uh, monkish type of thing, that, right? Like, Kubel Kobani was the one, like, things she would give her, let herself have. Which is really interesting too, I kept liking the fact that Kubelko Bondi and her connection was almost entirely in her head, like so much else of her life, so like they spoke quote unquote telepathically, um, which seemed to, to me create that feeling that the whole novel has of being really like insular and cut off from the rest of the world. And you're, you're really locked into Cheryl's head and then Kubelko Bondi, yes, he's her one connection, but they also are really only communicating inside Cheryl's kind of airtight world. Yeah, and that, that honestly um, kind of led me to believe this was a different type of book when I first started reading it. Um, my, and maybe because I was starting to read, uh, starting to watch Welcome to Me, the movie with Kristen Wiig where she is literally like insane and she has this talk show where she's talking about herself. Mm. And I was starting to read this at the same time and so with the Kubelko Bondi and with the internal monologue and the denial of self, I was like, okay, so this woman is like just literally insane, right? And it ended up, I, I feel like I, if I went back and read it now, I would have a completely different reading of those early chapters mm. because I was taking it from a whole different angle. I also just watched Welcome to Me, um, which is <laughs> a great movie. It's on Netflix, you can watch it. Um, and I immediately was like, this is a very, this feels like a very Miranda July movie. Totally. Uh, it, it, aspects of it reminded me of Me and You and Everyone We Know, which is a, a one of her um, first feature-length films. 
she also has a movie called The Future. Um, and I don't know, it just sort of like felt like uh, this similar like humans creating a world around them, creating mm. a self, creating an identity, um, and one that's uh, really eccentric and, and different and uh, expresses some uh, ideas about identity that um, I don't know are, are just to me really compelling because I, we all sort of feel insane sometimes <laughs> and so I yeah. think and Cheryl I think Glickman and, and these characters allow us to, yeah. to experience that. And the thing I really like about Miranda July's work is just kind of like the flow of it. It, it feels very intuitive. I mean, maybe she labors over every single sentence she writes, but it doesn't feel that way. Right. It feels like a brain dump. It feels like um, just this very intuitive process that is without inhibition. And for that reason, I think I would, like the words that kept on coming to me in describing the book were like magical realism. Mm -hmm. I'm not a literary professor. Like, is that even applicable? I'm. I know that it's just used for like <laughs> other authors, but like, I feel like that would be like her genre because people call her like kooky or quirky or whatever. <laughs> I feel like it's a little like sexist. It is. It. I think but so. uh, what, what would you say? I'm the total authority on all things <laughs> literary, so I would say yes. No, I, I do think um, I do think you would call it magical realist for sure, and I actually really agree with you that. The, the kind of moniker of quirky that she often gets really is a gendered thing because it seems like her work is not at all cutesy or... Um, it's really brutal It's sometimes. brutal and dark, especially yeah. this yeah. book. Um, having read um, her book of short stories and then seen Me, You, and Everyone We Know, I Didn't See the Future, there I really like those, but this book feels even darker to me. You know, like she's taking you into a new place in terms of the power relations and the like sadomasochism and the fights and I, I feel like the idea that you would apply the term quirky to her seems really strange like I feel like she's doing something so much more interesting than that yeah I was telling um, I, I would agree with the magical realism is the only thing I could think of and I don't know exactly what it is either but that is what sort of <laughs> the sense that I couldn't tell what was real or not real and what was you know because so much of it yeah. did exist in Cheryl's head but I gotta say I was like bummed out through most of this book right until the very end and, it w and I, I say that in the sense that like I was trying to describe it to my wife, like what is what the book is, what's going on. And I was like, it's this really sad book about this really sad person, and it's like keeps getting worse. And I, I don't mean worse quality-wise. I mean like just the things going on around with the people and the depths of the people, not all the various people. You know, there really aren't any good people in the story, except perhaps neighbor homeless Rick. Um, it wasn't until the very, very, very end when there's this epilogue reunion, um, which seems happy and seems nice. And, and in some ways, I felt like, and this is another discussion topic, but one of the things I felt at the end of it was, you know, this is this world of, um, I guess, Southern California, and it's this professional class of people uh, who all have chosen a sort of, uh, which could be classified, I guess, sort of like individualistic, professional, striving life, and all of them seem like miserable in the end of it. And the only thing that's ever nice about the whole thing is the relationship between Cheryl and Jack. Like the only thing that, it's like, it almost seems like it's at the very end of it, the long last, it's like this affirmation of boring old motherhood. You know, <laughs> it's, like, it's like this long story that just says, well, this, this, this thing is actually really nice. And Cheryl sort of like has this nice feeling about it. But I would have never thought that walking through the whole movie. You know, I, book. I, felt like though though their relationship was super weird but um 
did you guys pronounce it in your head, Klee or Clay? I said Klee. I said Klee. Okay, yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking too. The relationship when it finally turned sexual between Klee and Cheryl, I found actually like very charming. Like neither of them were expecting it, mm -hmm. obviously. Um, a friend of mine pointed out, um, she thought the funniest line in the entire book was when Cheryl is considering Klee as like a human for the first time. I think it was maybe when Klee was just like, I'm not a lesbian, I like dick or something like <laughs> that. And Cheryl's like, I could imagine us sitting in a boat together, liking dick together or something <laughs> like that. And I, I wasn't expecting the lesbian relationship storyline to pop up. And so I think there are bits of the book that I would read completely differently, reading it a second time. Um, but I found it like really charming um, despite the fighting and brutality. <laughs> Which I also kind of, I actually, funny enough, found the fighting charming. And the <laughs> Once they got to the routines. Yeah, it yeah. was like so interesting. Yeah. Which was, I mean, it was funny, obviously, there was like a humor aspect to it, but it was also, um, it was really complex and, and kind of yeah. difficult to understand uh, at first. Um, uh, they're sort of like replaying these. Uh, Scenes from from these self defense videos uh, produced by Cheryl's nonprofit, uh, and the parents at. of Clee, and the parents yeah. of Clee, which by the way, th they were two of my favorite characters in the novel. <laughs> oh, the parents, I found them to be like absolutely hilarious. Um, even though it was in their total narcissistic total way. narcissism, yeah, yeah. Tol you you felt like this whole Southern California like yeah. Just like total Like the mother would have a caftan on all the time, like right. flowing. I'm you know. just picturing Mrs. Roper from Three's Company. Now. <laughs> <laughs> Which it's sort of, yeah, so it's like the juxtaposition of the new agey kind of like let's help people in the world but be completely self-centered and right. um, just, you know, in denial of other people's feelings. I found, actually, it's really interesting you were talking about the fight scenes and then the romance between Klee and Cheryl, and I actually found them all really moving in a strange way because I felt like so much of the book was about how we get trapped in our identities but secretly want to escape them and be other people and be other things, which I don't know about you guys, but I feel like that many times. And so there's something really, I felt like emotionally satisfying about these moments when Cheryl, who has this totally uh, limiting life gets to be someone else, and she like she gets to be in a couple with, with Klee. You know, she gets to be someone who can take out all of her aggression the, in these fight scenarios. And I felt like Miranda July did such a great job of for me making these poignant moments of escaping mm -hmm. that narrow Cheryl character. And there's also the the idea of getting out of your own head. I know yeah. for me, as, as someone who deals with like anxiety and depression and things like that, I know sometimes I just get so in my head, and I definitely identified with the parts of Cheryl where she she has her routine to like not like completely her one dish, like her one dish, her one set of utensils, <laughs> so that you know the apartment can't totally go to shit seems when like she's such feeling a good bad. Idea. Right, and then and then this <laughs> seems almost like a Fight Club esque solution to you don't like your identity okay, like, you can just get out of your head and you can be someone else or something. I, I s definitely see that connection. I don't know if you guys have ever read this book, too. Another connection that I saw was there's this great novel by Claire Massoud called The Woman Upstairs. It was, like, a couple of years ago it came out, and all the writing about it was the fact that it had a really unsympathetic female narrator. Like, she wasn't likable. She was kind of bitter and bitchy and really depressed. And I felt like, in a different way, Cheryl was a similar kind of character. She wasn't immediately sympathetic. She did a lot of unappealing things, and I felt like that was such a radical thing 
for Miranda July to do to, to challenge the notion that women have to be likable, right? Like sweet and likable and redeemable, and instead of just really weird and right. dark. And I, I'm actually reading yeah. Roxane Gay's Bad Feminist mm. um, book right now, and she has a whole essay about the idea of female characters in books like having to be likable. Like whenever someone is reviewing a book where the protagonist is female, the discussion is whether or not she is likable. Like there's no discussion of whether or not she's an anti-hero or yeah. whatever. Like there would always be have male, male anti-heroes, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so I, f I, f I find that very interesting. My students always do they're like, I hate her. I'm like, this character in the book, you don't have to, you don't have to like her. Like, yeah. Your opinion doesn't actually matter here. <laughs> well, that's an interesting segue uh, to Klee, because mm. Klee is just... <laughs> Eminently unlikable. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so <laughs> unlikable. And yeah, and, and interesting, I mean, you know, yeah, she's, she's this... 20-something, self-centered. Moocher. Uh, moocher, moody, and also disgusting. <laughs> Her feet. Right. There's, smell, a lot yeah. of, there's a lot of smells and, and tastes in this book, and just it's sort of like an onslaught of, of like sensory, just uh, like what we would not say is positive or, or good. I wondered, like, does that sensory stuff only come in once Klee comes into the picture, or does it exist before then? That's a really good question. I don't know. I, I, yeah, probably not before because Cheryl talks about her. Is it? I was trying to remember. Is it her plan or her or her um, uh, when she talks about how she keeps her house the way she does? It's called the. Like this is my method. Method, the method or might something. be it. Yeah. 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 But yeah, her whole life is so sanitized intentionally. Yeah. So before before Klee shows up, mm -hmm. and she wrecks it. And you get a sense that she went, like, she has to do this thing, uh, this way of organizing, because she's had periods of her life where she's been in, just lived in her own filth. That, that she's, she hints at it uh, subtly that if she doesn't do this, then she will be Klee in a way. Like, she will become Klee. Hmm. Oh, you see, I, I read it as more of a um, mental untidiness rather than a physical sty. I, I saw it as her way of keeping, in a way, keeping herself moving even when she can't move, like on those days when she can't get out of bed. Interesting. Um, I saw it as a method of coping with depression rather than a uh, prevention against messiness. It was interesting, though, because it does seem like there are a lot of characters in the book who kind of function as Cheryl's doubles in a way, right? In, I mean, in the sense that there's Klee, who is is so different from Cheryl, and I feel like becomes an outlet for all of Cheryl's like internal dirtiness and messiness. And then I think the relationship that Cheryl has with Philip is so crazy. Philip Bettelheim, the guy that she's in love with, but then she starts thinking of herself as his like avatar, who mm -hmm. is having sex with all these women, and mm -hmm. and that weird way in which he lets her become who she really is. But then the therapist too. Oh, the th yeah, Ruth Ann. Yeah, another great aspect of this book, <laughs> in my opinion. That was a great, was a great character. I would hope, like in the movie version, I want her to be played by Tilda Swinton. That would be one. <laughs> she would be perfect. Right? She totally yeah. looks like her in the description, right? She was like big with, with kind of androgynous features, really powerful. Yeah. But remember, and what you just said reminded me, there's, there's also sort of like a morphing that happens in the book because she realizes at, towards the end that what she saw as this therapist was actually like a much bigger version, and she ends up seeing her as smaller mm. and more, uh, more feminized That's by a good the point. end. Yeah, which is I don't yeah, which is interesting. Well, one of those uh, magical realism questions, or questions about how much of this exists in Cheryl's head versus how much is factual reality. 
I gotta admit at the very end, I wasn't totally clear that Ruth Ann actually was a therapist and wasn't <laughs> just always the secretary <laughs> and that she had and that, that there was some that I think Cheryl did go see her, but I'm not convinced that she went to see her and it wasn't you know, she wasn't a therapist. It was just this thing that they worked out because they both were in on this it was their I forget what she referred to it as. Adult games. Yeah, yeah it was adult, their games. adult games. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> That's a really interesting theory. Yeah. yeah. Well the whole adult game thing was fascinating. Really fascinating. Especially because it seems like um, Ruth Ann and was it what was it, Doctor Broyard? You know, ha they had their adult games, but they also had these fake medical procedures where they were going to do the rebirthing. I remember, they're like, "Oh, Cheryl, come and do this rebirthing." And then when she overhears Doctor Broyard talking to Ruth Ann, it's about how well we don't really know how to do a rebirthing. This is kind of BS, but we do it so we can be together. So There's like another fake aspect of their relationship. Right. Is this even this procedure? Right. Which is real. Rebirthing therapies are, yes. are real and exist. I didn't. I was going to ask: do, Is color therapy real? Is that Probably. a real thing? Probably. That sounds very like California. Chromotherapy. I don't yeah. know. Right. Like it the taking like, like two drops of red every morning. I mean, I wish I had Google. Can you Google this and yeah, see um, if, if it is actually real? I mean, I've heard of rebirthing, but usually it's not really a recommended practice. Um, and I, yeah, I wondered to what extent um, Dr. Broyard I mean, he's only in the book, like, what, like, three times? Because he's only in the country, like, three times or something. Right. Um, I found that whole um, storyline where all <laughs> of the characters ran into each other in his goddamn waiting room, right. so funny. Right. Like, so it does oh, so how did Clee meet Philip? And, and, like, how did he impregnate her? Oh, they were at the yeah. color therapist office. And apparently, chromotherapy has its own wiki page, which makes it an established <laughs> practice, right? But um, sometimes called color therapy and alternative medicine, which is considered pseudoscience, chromotherapists claim to be able to use light in the form of color to balance energy, lacking from a person's body, whether it be physical, emotional, spiritual, or mental. Hmm. So it's kind of like a, a discredited pseudoscience, but it does exist. Well, interestingly, you know, when she's seeing Ruth Ann, and maybe even Phil initially says this about her weird glob globula, whatever it's called. <laughs> Globus <laughs> hystericus. Globus yes. hystericus. Which is a real thing. Which I is did a real wiki thing. That. that. You know, really this is something that needs to be solved with uh, uh, psychology, psychological therapy. Yeah. Right? Like, and like Ruth Ann's basically saying that. I think Phil even says that when he first recommends her. And so in some ways, that description of chromotherapy, the actual, I mean, it seems like it's just another branch of it's more like it's more close to sort of some sort of mental therapy that's convincing you of something than it is a physical thing that's happening to your body because of anything you do with this. Which is interesting because, you know, remember that the only thing that really works, the only thing that gets rid of her globus hystericus is physical. Is the f is fight like the first time she yeah. fights, she's like, I can't, even, I don't even remember it anymore. Um, so it's yeah, it's. And it's I think it, it's it, it's getting her out of her head like. Right. Um, that globus, globus hystericus is a psychosomatic kind of feeling that you've got something caught in your throat, according to Wikipedia, as I read a few <laughs> days ago. Um, and it, it makes sense that the, like, that idea that she's getting out of her own head, she's getting out of her own body, even by this fighting, that it would also like turn off the, the globus. Because it never came back. I mean, it came, it, like the whole last, I don't know, third of the book, when the whole time with Clea and with Jack, Never comes back, right? I don't know. D there was a brief period early on where she was afraid. It started to come back, mm -hmm. and she would have to keep fighting more and more violently. But then you're right. There's a, like a turning point where she just loses 
mm -hmm. loses the globus hystericus, and then that's it. Um, Maybe that's the point, too, where she has, she has shifted the focus of herself. I hadn't even thought of this right now, but she shifted the focus of herself away from herself, which, it was a, which it had been exclusively for her whole life, to finally was focused on Jack when she became know, Jack's quasi mother or father, or whatever you want to say she is. But Although like she was focused on Kubelko Bondi at short intervals right. her whole life. And this is, yeah, when it finally became a, like a permanent thing she could fixate on yeah. besides herself, and it just went away. When he finally manifested. Yeah. As Jack. Yeah. What was the other name? Like Little Fatty or something? That they, that <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, that's right. Plea. That was her first choice. Yeah, she yeah. said, what, what do you want to name? And she was like, either Little Fatty or Jack. Go, go, Jack. <laughs> you know, that, you, back to your point about Cleve before, I, I think th th this kind of makes me think about that there were moments when I would think, oh, you know, Cleve had all these, um, all this armor up and she had all these different things, but like there was something interesting in her and then, and then she would say something and you're like, oh, maybe there isn't, right? Maybe there really isn't anything there, <laughs> you know? That yeah. there, that, 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 and I think in the end, I think there wasn't anything there. Right, I found it very interesting when Cheryl decides to essentially to like cut Clee loose. Like it seemed like everything was going pretty good, aside from the fact that she was raising Jack basically on her right. own. She was the mother. Clee was doing whatever Clee does. They did seem to really love each other. So I found it very interesting that she cut cut her loose. Like what's what's up with that? Yeah, that was really interesting because on one hand you're led to believe that Klee finds this new love, the other woman who she meets when she does catering, right? Rachel, I think, was that her name? Mm -hmm. um, but it does seem, I think you're right, that it's actually Cheryl who, who kind of writes this narrative herself that there's no way this is ever going to work, and so she's going to cut Klee loose before Klee can cut her loose. That was how I read it, partially, mm -hmm. at least. It, that felt very real to me in terms of somebody falling very deeply in love with someone, which I felt, I felt that their love was real. Um, and uh, then the sort of feeling of like, you know, your, your dopamine in your brain kind of wearing off and, and sort of being like, I think I was just infatuated with this person, or I think I, I, think I just felt really strongly for, for this short period of time. And, and it's almost like, I, I, I don't think she explicitly says this, but I almost feel like she was just like, I know this isn't going to work uh, because I'm not in love with her um, in the way that I thought I was very intensely at the beginning of this relationship, which felt really, it was a really real sort of relationship, complicated, you know, human like thing. Like no fairy tale, right. no right. happy ending bullshit, even though there was kind of a happy ending yeah. to the book as a whole, but in a way that, oh, we are existing in the world together. But I don't, th I don't think that was true to Cheryl. You know, I, I think that's more true to probably the character that had been developed at that point, that she would, she would question the, the, the infatuation, mm -hmm. go through that analysis you just went through, like maybe this was just infatuation, maybe we just had this incredibly traumatic experience together that brought us mm -hmm. together during that experience, and then once that wore off, you know, I mean, I don't even know if she really, if Clee really smelled, or it was just a manifestation of, for, for Cheryl, of the things she didn't like about Clee, mm -hmm. and that all those things came back when the sort of the glow moment, the glow weeks had passed, and then all of a sudden it was like all the stuff that she that she yeah. she she like the picture of her changed back to the bad version. I wondered too if the, the her feet smelling, if Cleese's feet smelling so badly wasn't, as you're kind of saying, a manifestation of her discomfort about being attracted to her. It was like she had to manufacture this thing that would repel her when she was uh -huh. actually really attracted mm. to Klee, because yeah. it didn't seem like anyone else acknowledged this like horrible stench that supposedly came off of Klee's feet, but to uh, Cheryl, it was just you know overwhelming. Um, 
I also thought that the idea that they would fall in love over the birth of the baby was, was in a way really realistic because um, sure. I was talking about this to Grace that um, I had a baby 15 months ago and there it is an experience that you feel like in that moment anything could have happened. <laughs> I could have been like, <laughs> I'm running off with that doctor down the hall or like, I'm, I'm running you know, off with Kabelko Bonnie. Yeah, I'm naming the baby Kabelko Bonnie. Like everything seemed possible because it was such a crazy experience where you're outside of time and outside of your normal life. Mm -hmm. And um, so it seemed really like something quite real to me that they could have this totally different life in those moments around the baby being born. You see, I thought that, um, I found it a little strange that Sh Cheryl would break up with Clee in light of her obsessive tendencies, like how obsessed she was with Philip at the very beginning. And then I saw that obsession kind of moving to Clee and then she kind of got rid of it. I mean, I guess it just shows this growth in the character that is like really cool to see, even if, even if it's surprising to me as casual observer. Um, but I, I wasn't. I wasn't expecting it at but all. I think in, in, in hearing you describe that, I, I think there's part of it that makes sense to me in that her world, as we've been talking about, is so before this book started was so uh, controlled and cordoned off and basically in her own head. And so she could control like her relationship, quote unquote, with Phil that she had imagined was all as she had created it, right? And she controlled. She controlled what that was. She controlled what you know, their lifetimes together, all that stuff. And that was also true to some extent for a little bit of while with Clee. And then I think, I really think what I, my take in part is that she then had a real relationship with Clee that she couldn't control anymore. And it wasn't, and it wasn't just her envisioning of it. And then she had a real relationship with Jack and she basically said the relationship with Jack is the one that I like. And the relationship with Clee isn't the thing that I get to, that I wanted, that I thought it was going to be in my creation of it in my own head. But the one with Jack is, I, I like it. And I'm in, and I'm in control of it because he's just a little kid and he needs me. I think there's one, one other uh, explanation I can think of for their, their breakup or for why maybe Cheryl felt they needed to break up uh, is that there, there are a lot of like changing parental dynamics in the book. Um, clearly, Clee's, Clee's parents <laughs> are just bad parents. Uh, or, or just self-centered people. Um, and so to, to a certain extent, I think that, uh, I think Cheryl adopted Clee first as, as a child, in a way, as her child. Mm -hmm. And in fact, even when they began pursuing the sexual relationship, there were moments when Clee, or when Cheryl imagined herself as Clee's father having sex with her. I remember that. Yeah. She was like, I can't stop myself thinking about this. This is where my mind has to go because I've walked down this road. Um, and I found that to be uh, really um, interesting uh, because there's sort of like, it, it's, it's like a logical conclusion. You know, it's like, well, I've imagined myself as everybody having sex with her. And so now logically I have to imagine myself as her father because I'm kind of in this mother role anyways. Um, so maybe one thing is like, you know, she's now that now that Jack is there, she can then be Jack's mother and doesn't have to be Clee's mother anymore. So she can sort of like let Clee go and be herself and find her own um, parent. That's really interesting. There's also a line towards the towards the end where she talks about like how all these weirds and all these weird linings up of the universe eventually led Kabelko Bondi to finally come to her. And then I think you could read the whole story as 
Cheryl like using people to get what she wants. I feel like that would be like a completely other like analysis of it. Like That's going really back, interesting. Like what if the whole hmm. thing, it, it, sh it was never about Cheryl, it was always about Kabaka Bondi. Well, that's so interesting because she comes off as such a powerless person for so much of the book, like, like, or at least the first half of the book, let's say to me, she comes off as this just person who is, who is, who is, who is a sort of a passive observer of her own life. And, and then, and then I think by the end, she is an empowered person who's taken control and decided what she wants and what's important to her. Um, but I think the Cheryl from the first half of the book, it's, it's hard for me to imagine her designing anything to, to your point but I, but but that's interesting because she does ultimately come out where uh, through all these different people in her life comes out of the place that for her worked out and even though the rest of the people are sort of like alone again and and presumably Philip presumably is unhappy yeah what do you make of that that I thought that was really interesting when she rejects Philip in the end suddenly he's he brings his toothbrush over yeah my reaction has decided he is terrible yeah. is he the first bad man that's like i mean in terms of the title <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I, I kept trying to think about that you know what yeah. the title yeah. meant in terms of this book well um, you did see the actual mention where Glee yes. is like, I'm the first bad man. Right. Like, but I okay. wondered if Philip was in a strange like way. Reading of Especially it. because, remember, she talks about their relationship transcending time. She's like, you know, we were prehistoric man and wife or something. And I kept picturing him as actually like the first bad man <laughs> um, because he seems so bad, so yeah. fundamentally, you know, detestable as a character. It almost seems like Miranda July, and I, I don't know anything about her, so I'm interested. In, in your introductory remarks about her and to learn more about her, but that the, the characterizations of Philip and also Suzanne and Carl are so damning that these are like people she knows and, <laughs> and, and like wants to expose for what they are. You know, I mean, like Susan and Carl, when they're talking about how they don't want to know their grandkid because they want to just be a, if that, if this kid chooses <laughs> to like us as people, as friends, and that's cool, but <laughs> but I don't want that pressure to be on that kid to think that we're, I mean, it was like, it was a, such a caricature of, <laughs> of, of, of people who would say something like that. She does, she did grow up in um, Berkeley, right, and, and talks about sort of being in this community of new agey, um, you know, a kid amongst these new agey adults who kind of had to make her way um, without huge amounts of parental supervision. Mm. So I'm not saying that her parents are Carl and Suzanne. That would be too She cruel, probably met some Carl. But she probably met some yeah. Carl. Well, that makes me, that's really interesting. Makes me think about, so she grew up with these sort of like new agey, you know, probably some radical feminism around her, um, like 1960s feminism. Or 1970s uh, probably. Right? And, and which is very much uh, rejecting the, the domestic model, I think. I, I'm not an expert in, in feminism at all. But What's interesting is that the, the radical choice in this book feels like the choice of motherhood, which I don't, I don't know. What, what from, do you the, from the acknowledgments at the end, it sounded like she was pregnant and or was about to have her own first baby when hmm. she was writing this book, which I feel like is another completely different reading of, of the book then. Like if I were a mother reading this, which I'm not, I feel like I would have a completely different emotional response to this like whole weirdness and um, everything. My friend actually read it while she was like, she just had a baby and was like nursing, and I imagine that was probably a really trippy experience. It is a really, even being much post-birth as I am, it was a pretty trippy experience because I could tell reading it that 
Miranda July had had a baby pretty recently, mm. especially during the, the narrative about um, Jack's early days, because it's a really apt rendering of you know your sleeplessness and how you become semi-insane for a period of time and are hallucinatory. And, uh, but she just, I felt like she was really able to render that in a very accurate way. So it is, I think, Grace, it's really interesting to think of this as also a story about birth and yeah. birth's weirdness and Miranda July having had a baby not long before the book came out, probably being pregnant for most of it, maybe get, you know, having the baby towards then is really interesting. Mm -hmm. yeah. I thought that the writing during that was incredible. And I think part of it was that I, you know, and I didn't have any babies, but my wife had two <laughs> in the last three years. <laughs> and I was around you for You were it. around, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and um, it's, it, the, the way she described those moments and the emotion, of, I was on, I mean, I was, like my stomach was turning reading it is this kid, you know, he's blue, oh my God, what's going on, you know? And this crazy story that the homeless gardener somehow knows how to deliver babies and he's doing it the right way. I mean, it was, it was, it was both just page-turningly fun, but also uh, written in a really compelling way. And I, and, I, and I think, I did get the feeling, I mean, my, the one little note I wrote down about this book at the end of it was that I, I felt, to your point, Ben, that she, she ultimately tells this story about how she rejects all this, she, she sort of like rejects and caricatures new age thinking and like glorifies ultimately at the end of the day this sort of very traditional model of, of, a, of a mother taking care of a, chi of a kid. It's interesting though because I think she does, I think you're right that the, you know, Cheryl's um, satisfaction comes from being a mother, but it definitely doesn't feel like a traditional, it's actually what's interesting, I mean, sort of building on what you're saying is that it's a maternity, but a totally different kind of well, maternity. Yeah, She's not the biological mother. <laughs> right. She was the part-time lover slash mother slash father of this woman who completely slash just sparring partner. Spar yes, slash <laughs> sparring partner of this crazy <laughs> woman who, who doesn't like have any maternal. Her. Yeah, and doesn't have any real maternal instinct. So it's a really, I mean, I think it's an interesting idea of maternity being satisfying, but not classic. Right maternity at all. I right. mean, it's something totally different that, that Cheryl's doing. That's what I think makes it interesting in a yeah, lot Yeah, like of ways. a, and, uh, and this is, I couldn't, I, I haven't been able to find the words to describe this, but it's exactly what you're saying. It's not, it's not a biological maternalism. It's just, it's, it's a, it's an embrace of genuine loving relationships, like true, unaffected, unqualified loving relationships, not mm -hmm. a rejection of sort of cynicism and, and intellectualism about relationships and like this like ludicrous idea that, well, I'll let my grandkid choose if they want to be friends <laughs> with me. They, we, right. have, we have things in common. You know, like that's a very intellectualized vision of how you think friendship should exist. And this is saying what really matters is this true love that's unqualified and, and, and direct and real. And it's not because it's biological necessarily, because it just exists, right? There's no question that, she, that they each have this for each other. In a way, it's it's that idea, romantic idea of foreordained love that she thinks she has with Philip. Right. She kind of falls into with Clee, but then Kubelko Bondi finally surfaces. And in a way, that's all foreordained because she's been expecting it since she was, what, like nine years nine old? Nine years old, yeah. right. There's this great book that I read recently called The Argonauts. I don't know if anyone, it's so good. Um, I can't recommend enough. It's by this woman named Maggie Nelson, who is a, um, a poet and a scholar, and then she writes these just like hybrid memoir pieces and so this is all about the Argonauts is basically about her becoming a mother but it's the most unorthodox story about becoming a mother and her partner um, is trans and um, genderqueer and sort of but like it's all about rewriting maternity and seeing maternity as radical in interesting ways and, and she has, talks about this artist who um, does a photography exhibit 
um, of, of people who are queer or who are genderqueer and then they're with babies and puppies and it's like rewriting domesticity as something that isn't always just like classic mom with her baby carriage but it's about maternity having all these different faces right. and cuteness having different kinds of faces. So I thought this book felt like it was a good companion to, to that idea that maternity can, can be radical um, and doesn't have to be doesn't have to be our classic domestic notion um, for it to be meaningful. I mean, it's sort of a parallel, I mean, I don't know what the, I don't know if Miranda July to our question, to a question many people have asked, what is her thing? Uh, <laughs> what is her thing? Right, like, I don't know what her, I don't necessarily know what her point is for this book or what her, what her thing is in general, but I think one possible, to this point we're pursuing this discussion of, of, it, of the sort of radical nature of, of, a, of an alternative version of domesticity or an alternative version of motherhood. You know, it's sort of the like same parallel path of, of of in some ways that sort of gay marriage debate has gone. It's, it's sort of, it's like, it's fundamentally an argument about this very traditional idea just being available to everybody, right? As a, and not being cut off uh, from whatever it's been traditionally defined as. But you're talking about a traditional idea fundamentally sort of being, being embraced. And I think, um, I think there is a similarity there to what you're describing from Argonauts and what she's describing here, that there's, there's these core things that are really wonderful and beautiful about humanity. And we've gotten them We've segregated them and only made them available to certain people for different reasons. And once you sort of let them open to everybody, they they their their core value shines through. I guess I don't know if that's the best way to put it. But so uh, after I uh, finished taking the bar exam, I went on vacation for a week uh, in Los Angeles with my girlfriend, and um, we were sitting outside of uh, the Ace Hotel in downtown Los Angeles which is uh, kind of a cool cool spot. And um, next door uh, at this uh, movie theater, they were having this big premiere um, for uh, like this Sundance Next. So we started seeing some, you know, sort of indie level celebrities walking by. Um, and uh, about five minutes into this dinner, I, I spot out of the corner of my eye Miranda July and her husband walking by. And I had just finished the novel about a week prior. And we just, I looked at her, she looked at me, we, we locked eyes for this split second and it was like she was scared to see me. Like she, like she didn't, because I have this whole thing, like if I can't meet people that I, uh, I appreciate their work, artists, writers, I can't. I don't know what to say to them. I'm, I'm kind of a fanboy. So it's just, I would be uncomfortable saying anything. But she was like looking at me like that. Like she knew that I knew. And I just felt like, you know, and it's like only if you've read, I feel like if you've read uh, The First Bad Man or seen her, like you would just know that that, that makes sense, that, that she can do that, that she's that sort of intuitive as a, as a person. And it was a really cool moment. Uh, has anyone here used Miranda July's app? Somebody? Somebody. Yes. I, I okay. I haven't used it. it, but I have it. Now yeah. I want to use it. So the it. concept is that with this app, and they made this whole trailer for it. It's like funded by Prada or something. Like they had like major production quality on this. The idea is you use this app to send a person, send like an avatar to deliver your message in person to someone who is far away from you. And so it's really a beautiful concept. Um, anyone who's using it can deliver a message in person and be like, hi, Jennifer, it's me, Max. <laughs> Just wanted to say, I really miss you, and then give you a hug or something like that. Yeah. And um, 
I've used it in person, but it was really just in a joke kind of format. We were all at a party, and we were all using it to send messages to each other from across <laughs> the room. <laughs> um, interestingly enough, a, uh, a woman proposed to her partner um, uh, at Neons and Over the Rhine using somebody. Oh, wow. Um, what? And Miranda July loved it and wrote about it. And yeah, it When was, was this? Like, not very long ago. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, That's amazing. And, and it makes me think that maybe... Uh, Miranda July's message and desire is for us to see other people, to see everybody as our Cabelco Bondis uh, that we can um, reach out and connect with, um, which is a great way to close this podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Um, this has been an edition of 12 Stories.